0: From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. And join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Hey, all Welcome back to The Podvocate. I'm Casey Callahan, and today I'm joined by Helen Kim Skinner. Helen Kim Skinner is a part-time adjunct professor teaching children's law and policy and practice in the online MJ in child law program and intensive trial advocacy course in child law at the law school. She also works as a private contractor at the Federal Defender Program in Chicago, where she supervises MSW students from various social work schools in Chicago and practices privately as a forensic social worker and criminal mitigation specialist. Professor Skinner received her JD and MSW from Loyola's School of Law and School of Social Work in 1997. She began her career as a court coordinator in the Circuit Court of Cook County before becoming an attorney In the Cook County Public Defender's Office, Child Protection, and Juvenile Justice Divisions. She then spent 10 years at the Federal Defender Program in Chicago as a staff attorney representing individuals charged with federal crimes in the Northern District of Illinois. She previously taught in Loyola School of Social Work. She assisted in the formation of the James B. Moran Second Chance Program, the Federal Reentry Court, that continues to operate in the Northern District of Illinois and she began the social work internship program at the Federal Defender Program in 2003, where she's my supervisor for my first year MSW internship this year. Thanks so much for joining us, Helen. Thank you for having me. So first I'd like to dive into why did you decide to pursue a JD and an MSW at the same time?
1: Um, When I applied to the dual degree program, it was, like many students who are getting done with their undergraduate degree and trying to think about what they wanna do with their life. um, It was really because I was stuck between two different loves I had. One was working um, further in the social work field. I had a bachelor's in social work that I received from Loyola University, but I also really wanted to be a courtroom advocate there was even back then, to me, an obvious difference between working in direct services with individuals where you might be trying to help them make a change in their life, in their lives um, individually, or being able to really um, hopefully make more change by arguing on their behalf in a court system. So I pursued both at the same time, not really seeing how they would combine. But um, looking back now, it's really easy for me to see and identify the ways that my career trajectory made a lot of sense and that those two worked hand in hand, especially because I went into public defense.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, And that leads into my next question, that how did your social work education inform your legal practice? Because it seems that right out of completing the dual degree, you went into the legal field initially.
1: So, when I was learning and studying social work, even as an undergrad student, um, the primary populations that you're learning about are those populations that tend to be minority status, they're disadvantaged, Mm -hmm. impoverished, marginalized. um, And those also tend to be the same people who are being represented by public defenders. So while I had a lot of classmates that went on to study and specialize in a career in big law, that was never something that I even considered remotely, even though there were a lot of things about it that were enticing, including the money (laughs) in particular. um, I kind of resigned that my life would be one um, where I would possibly be impoverished as well if I remain dedicated to the population I wanted to serve. Um, But I found that all of the tenets that you learn in social work, which is really about the kind of struggles that individuals go through, the kinds of ways that you can support people who may not be used to having support, how to empower them, how to see their strengths, how to offer a client um, an opportunity to find self-determination and actually help them to achieve that are all things that did inform my legal practice um, because I really saw my role as a public defender as being true to the ethical and philosophical thought that in order to become an advisor to your client, they have to first trust you. And then once they trust you, if you give them advice, they'll want to take your advice. And so I never had a top-down mentality when I was representing clients. I really viewed that um, the relationship had to be one of trust. And it was only when I had the trust that a client would follow what I suggested to them, not because I was smarter than them, but because I did a good job at explaining to them what their options are. And then when they say, well, what would you do if I give them my my thought on it, they'll follow it. Um, I think that as I continue to work in the public defense um, field, I also found that especially when you're working on sentencing issues or when you're thinking about um, issues related to bond or release, the ability to tell your client's story or what they're going through experientially was something that was harder to see, especially because it sounded like Um, the arguments that were being made for why somebody should be released, for example, was literally just listing off a bunch of things. Like they're currently working, they live in the suburbs, they're married, they have children, and it it had nothing to do with the person or their characteristics or the struggles that they went through. Um, And that was something that I do believe that by being able to talk to a client, asking them certain questions that maybe weren't just about um, demographics or something that I could just get by filling out a template. I was able to then make more passionate arguments on their behalf when it came to either their sentencing or when I was trying to get their release.
0: So on on that line of thought, is there anything that you think generally you got from a social work education that was missing in your legal education or would be valuable to law students um, to look into who are currently law students now?
1: I think um, there's probably a better job done now in the law curriculum, especially because of the availability of law school clinics where the clinical faculty do a really good job at helping students to identify the clients as whole people and look at what the representation involves as not something as simple as just trying to get them to trial or winning a trial or or something like that. Um, I feel like there's a lot of things that are probably missing in the law school curriculum, at least when I went through law school in the sense of even just talking about the basic um, values of, of almost human dignity or the way to communicate with a client who might be hostile or resistant or defensive or not open to hearing the advice of an attorney. And I also think that in practice, I found that there's a big difference between somebody who learns how to explain all the different options to a client and then give that advice on what should be done compared to almost cutting the corners in that explanation because an attorney knows that there are certain, I guess, practicalities or certain things that are done Um, generally speaking. So they don't explain the theoretical options that are available. And then in turn, the clients end up just assuming that that's the only option that they have. And when they realize that's not, they feel really disappointed and distrustful of their representation. So those are all things that, again, come from the value of the human connection and the understanding that our clients are with us, not just because they can't afford a private attorney, but because they really went through a lot of things in their life and most likely a lot of trauma. Um, And so even having a little bit more understanding of what trauma can do to a person and how that can influence their decision-making, even when they're with you, um, I think are things that could be done on a regular basis in law school, even in the first year of law school. And while it would be more relevant to people who are working in public interest law, it could definitely still be relevant to those who are working in the private sector because they work with clients as well, or they work with clients who then are being accused of something by victims and vice versa.
0: Yeah, definitely. I know DePaul has a trauma-informed lawyering class um, that students at Loyola have the opportunity to take through a consortium uh, connection, but that I totally agree with what you're saying. And no matter what field of law, people don't generally enjoy uh, having to go to an attorney. We're, we're working with folks at some of the worst periods of their life, at the worst moments of their life. So understanding that no matter what you're working with them with is, is huge at, at a at a base level. Um, so you mentioned, you talked a little bit about your experience in, in public defense. Why did you choose to pursue specifically criminal defense?
1: My original passion and love was um, working with those who are charged with crimes of delinquency or those in the juvenile justice side. Um, And that was mostly because of my own upbringing, my own childhood, and just recognizing that there were, again, lots of reasons why children do end up going wayward or why they might end up not meeting the mold of what they're supposed to be doing all the time. And so I thought that I was going to have a full career um, throughout my life working in the juvenile justice side of things. Um, And that goes hand in hand with, I think, criminal defense, or at least some thinking about why people commit offenses, whether it's status offenses or something that's charged um, in juvenile court. But then um, my career ended up taking me to the state's uh, public defender's office, where I was originally placed in the abuse neglect court side, court house on the child protection side. And while I was there, I was working with adults who were accused of abusing or neglecting their children. I was there for three and a half years. And then I moved over to the juvenile justice side, where I stayed for a year before I ended up joining the federal defender program. Um, I think that doing criminal defense was not, as I said, really the first thing that I thought I would do, but it ended up making a whole lot of sense once I went through those first five years of my career, because it, again, links back to the idea of people do things not because they're bad people, but because of circumstances or because of their environment or because of things that they learned along the way, because of negative influences, because of traumatic response. Um, And so I think just working in that office and working with criminal defendants who ended up to be adults later kind of was part of my learning process and growth over the years.
0: So as you mentioned, you've worked both in the state and federal systems. Can you talk about your experience a little bit in each jurisdiction and what were some unique challenges to each jurisdiction as an attorney?
1: So when I was starting off in uh, my practice at the Public Defender's Office of Cook County was only a juvenile court. I ended up leaving the office in order to go to the Federal Defender Program. Um, And so I wasn't able to get to the point of where I was doing misdemeanors or bond court or anything in the felony divisions. However, I did notice that one of the difficulties for me was at the time being an attorney that was assigned to a courtroom where I was in front of the same judge every day, working with the same state's attorneys, the same probation officers. Um, And so there is a camaraderie that's established from being in the same courtroom all the time. I don't think that that it's friendships necessarily, but it's um, familiarity and there is of course camaraderie in the sense of that we're all working for the same judge who essentially is like our boss um, in some ways because they control the courtroom, they control when things are going to be given continuances or when they're going to happen. But for me, it it was very hard to be in that sort of setting because it did limit my ability to advocate zealously on behalf of clients. I felt like just like how when you're not, I don't know why I think of it as almost like with a parent, but just like when you're about to make an argument in front of somebody who's in a position of authority and you know what they think because you've seen a trend in the way that they make decisions, it's it, it ends up stifling you from making certain arguments that you would otherwise be freer to make if you were in front of somebody for the first time. I've even been in front of judges that have either chastised me or made noises that suggested to me that my arguments were falling on deaf ears. I've been um, cut off from speaking or arguing on behalf of a client because um, in certain instances, the judges had something to say that would be in their opinion, more important for the client that I was representing to hear. Um, And there was also an informality that came with that setup of being in the same courtroom all the time. And that because you're used to working with each other, um, the professionalism could sometimes not feel like it was as formal as it would be, for example, if you were always trying to put your best foot forward, if you were in front of a different judge, when you're really bringing um, everything to the table, when you're in front of a jury, where you know that not only do your first impressions matter, but the way that you're handling yourself all the time is something that's there. There are little things like that that can be over time, I think, affected so that ultimately, your ability to effectively represent a client can be impacted. And I didn't really love the way that it wasn't about whether or not I felt like I was powerful, but it was whether or not I could do everything that I wanted to do for someone.
0: And I wasn't able to do that all the time. So as I mentioned in your bio, you were a part of the team that formed the James B. Moran Second Chance Reentry Court. Can you talk a little bit about what the Second Chance Reentry Court is?
1: Um, So the Second Chance program is, as you said, a reentry court in the Northern District of Illinois. Um, And so the formation was something that happened in 2010. And at the time, there were not as many federal reentry courts as there are today. Um, even though in the state system, there are many problem-solving courts that exist, most of them are at the front end of a case where people who are identified to have certain issues and those issues are what led to certain crimes or, or instances of possible crimes happening, then by helping them in advance to address those issues, it's possible that they don't have to go through the criminal justice system. And that makes a lot of sense, I think, to a lot of people um, because it recognizes that, again, acts are not just done because somebody wants to do something bad, but there can be a lot of other contributing factors. Um, In federal court, there wasn't until more recently um any momentum or possibility for a front-end court, meaning that there were no pretrial diversion courts until recently, I would say within the last five or six years. Um, and my understanding of that is that it has a lot to do with the idea that the charging practices that were done by the US Attorney's Office and the Department of Justice were generally viewed as being. Um, independently valuable, and and there was almost a view that the charge wouldn't happen if it weren't for good reason. So instead, there was a a slow recognition that there were still people who were struggling with problems that were beyond just the crime that they committed. And so in order to help people who were being released from prison, returning to their communities to successfully reintegrate and reenter society, it was almost like these back end courts were established. And there were only a handful of them, and they were done almost like a grassroots movement, where different courts or different districts were identifying the need to help folks to reenter society a little bit better. but once that movement started, other courts would hear about it, other states would hear about it, and so slowly other reentry courts started to go up and running. So in Chicago, um, as I said, it was around 2008, let's say, that the recognition that reentry courts were starting to become a thing was I guess at the forefront of Judge Castillo's mind, who was the presiding judge of the courthouse at the time, uh, Judge Castillo was also um, a long serving member of the sentencing commission. So he helped with the sentencing guidelines and their amendments every year. Um, And he formed the committee in order for individuals to start looking and traveling to different reentry courts around the United States. And I was on that committee. Um, and so our charge was to find out how these reentry courts were running, what were their procedures, did they have a the methodology, were there anything about it, um, each of the courts that were similar, what were their differences, and then report back to the larger group so that we could come up with our game plan for what we wanted to do in Chicago.
0: Great. And yeah, as I mentioned, I'm uh, somewhat of a product of that as one of the social work interns that supports through the Federal Defender Program supports one of the reentry courts. And now there are two courts, um, uh, reentry courts at the courthouse, um, the federal courthouse. So it's, it's, it's a great program and folks who go through get access to a lot of resources that they might not otherwise have to hopefully, um, ease their reentering back into society. And um, also if they complete, they get their supervision time cut in half as well, which is a, a huge benefit um, in it freeing people earlier than they otherwise would be free. Um, so it's a great program and and thank you for your work on that. Um, what are other advances in reentry services that you would like to see? in the immediate future because i know you were a part of this group that that went around to different reentry courts and studied this and and while the court in at the northern district of illinois is is wonderful i it, it doesn't encompass all reentry services that we would love to see. so what are some advances in reentry services that you would like to see within the court system? um
1: i feel like whether it's as a society or in this particular field, we still have a lot of um, people who are working in silos, I think is kind of the terminology that's used when you have um, almost like entities or agencies or institutions that are really focused on a certain issue or a problem, and maybe even developing an expertise in that area, but they for lots of reasons, are not able to necessarily share that expertise um, to other people, whether it's because of um, lack of staff or the inability to focus on that sort of outreach or PR, perhaps it's because of funding um, that makes it so that so many people are doing... a lot of different roles within one agency. So, to even think about how to link with other agencies um, is something that's a little too overwhelming to do. I feel like we don't necessarily have the benefit of learning from each other the way that I wish it were done. So, for example, if let's say when the Chicago reentry court started, let's say that there were 10 other courts that existed. Um, If there are 40 now, there isn't a way to have everyone come together to talk about similar issues or the way that things are being handled. There's no listservs. There's no conferences that I know of where everybody is sharing ideas um, or talking about better ways that we can do things or improve things or even sharing the research that might have come out informally, anecdotally, or Uh, formally um, to find out ways that we can improve things. Um, It ends up that a lot of these courts are working in a vacuum and they're doing things the way that they're used to doing it. And perhaps they're always motivated to try to improve themselves, but it's not with the benefit of outside services, resources, expertise um, or evaluations, I feel like the um, inclusion of more training that would be done, maybe more um, evidence-based practices that could be shared and used across the board. Um, If there was more funding available so that what we're able to offer two participants in the program doesn't feel on one hand like it's um, too much privilege that's being given to such a small group of participants in the program. I think sometimes that's what can happen is that a district feels like, let's say there's 20 participants in the group. They don't want to just pour in thousands and thousands of dollars to just those 20 when there's an entire district full of people who are on supervised release who might also need certain products and resources too. So instead, they don't give it to anyone. (laughs) Um, Or maybe there could be more ways of trying to link different um, community, I guess, available options to the programming um, so that if there's a re-entry court and if it's established to be something that is succeeding, then by getting the buy-in from different businesses and agencies in the community, then we can start to almost form a partnership of some sort. And, and those efforts, as far as I know, aren't really done unless it's done at the individual level in a certain district. And again, it is because there's time and um, manpower to do that.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, having f- myself formerly worked in, in nonprofits, it's so easy to work in silos and, and funding doesn't get efficiently used in that way. So, um, I think that would be a huge advance, especially for re-entry services. Um, so pivoting now to your work, uh, as a social worker and, now you have a private mitigation practice. For folks who are listening who may not know, can you talk a little bit about what mitigation is and where it comes into play in the criminal legal system?
1: Sure. So mitigation or being a mitigation specialist is something that used to be um, more known in the capital world. So if somebody is facing the possible death penalty then the American Bar Association actually established standards that require a defense team to have a mitigation specialist on the team. And that person should be specialized in knowing how to collect mitigating evidence. Um, So this would be done because you're trying to help um, save somebody's life. You're trying to help not only tell their story, but find the evidence to support that story and the request that their life be spared. And um, the standardization is not um, completely articulated in a way that is standardized, but it at least explains the basic things that somebody should be able to do if they're declaring themselves to be a specialist in mitigation. And so those kind of things would be knowing how to properly interview the client, how to gather different um, witnesses and talk to those witnesses about the client and their experiences, to go through records, to um, find research that might be relevant and do other things that would kind of be part of an investigation of this person's life um, and then put it together in a presentation that at least in the capital world would be put on before the jury at the sentencing phase um, of the client's uh, criminal process. But capital mitigation has slowly morphed into non-capital mitigation Because of different things that have happened, there have been cases where, um, for example, in the federal courts, there are now cases where judges have more discretion on what they're going to sentence somebody to unless there's a mandatory minimum in place. Um, Clients can often be looking at very lengthy sentences, whether they're in the state or federal system. In the state system, you have a lot more discretion that's given to the state's attorneys who are making offers on a case, but also you have judges who are looking at sentencing ranges that can really um, vary. And so the ability to bring in information to the state's attorney or the judge in a state case or to the judge in a federal case Has become, I guess, recognized as being more important because of the outcome and the way that it can make a difference to the client. If you're able to convince somebody that a client has redeemable qualities, that they can be rehabilitated, that they have treatment needs that have been unmet, that the client might have gone through certain life experiences or dealt with certain circumstances that Were are outside of their control at one time, it's easier to then, I guess, be persuaded if you're a judge or a prosecutor to do something other than um, try to get the maximum sentence or punish somebody through incarceration that may be a lengthier period of time because you don't see any possibility of hope or you don't see a reason why, you should give them something more lenient.
0: Yeah, when I started in law school and, and began to explore what a career in public defense or criminal defense would look like, I didn't fully understand the importance of mitigation. But when you hear the staggering numbers of uh, federal pro- the federal prosecution rate for uh, especially individuals who have a public defender, it's something in the high 90% that so much of harm reduction comes into play from having quality mitigation and you know they may if they are going to be prosecuted how well how can we reduce the harm of incarceration as much as possible and so um it was it's mitigation is so valuable um and on that note do you how do you think attorneys can take advantage of a mitigation more or is there any gap in um attorneys being able able to take advantage of mitigation specialists. When you were attorney, uh, an attorney at the Federal Defender, do you feel like you had the mitigation support you needed? And if not, how could that be mitigated?
1: <laughs> so it really comes down to resources and Um, I guess, valuing the position enough to make it something that's available to attorneys, whether it's as a staff mitigation specialist, or again, in terms of funding that's available to hire somebody in certain cases. So I would say another big difference between the state and federal system is I think what you were referencing to, which is the high number of cases that end up with a conviction in the federal system. And in fact, I think it's over 96% of individuals who are charged with federal crimes who end up pleading guilty. And that's because the investigation process and the way that um, evidence can be collected over time before charges are brought in a federal case is different than the um, exigent and emergent situations that might lead to an arrest in the state system most of the time. Um, the staggering amount of evidence that's collected by the time a federal charge is brought or an indictment makes it so that most people who are charged federally, not all, but most will end up pleading guilty because there's just so much evidence against them. So in that sense, as a federal defender, even though I was with the federal defender program, this would be true for those who are in private practice as well. The primary responsibility of the attorney is, of course, to explain the charges to the client, help them understand the evidence against them, help them to understand um, if there are any benefits to going to trial versus pleading guilty. And then the vast majority of focus is really on the sentencing arguments for a client because there, as I said earlier, can be a range of what a judge might um, give to a client if they're getting a term of imprisonment. So in the federal defender program, we actually had the first non-capital mitigation specialist in the country in our office. And it was Jim Tabinski, who was a former pretrial services officer for many years. He was also a CADC. He came into the office already having some established rapport, relationships, and respect with district court judges who knew him as a pretrial services officer. um, And that allowed, I believe, um, him to make arguments on behalf of clients or write reports that would be recognized as being both valuable and helpful when the judges were ultimately going to make sentencing decisions. Um, So when I was practicing in the Federal Defender Program, I had Jim Tabinsky, who was there to assist on any cases that I might need him to assist on. And then I also um, brought in MSW students to work alongside attorneys and Jim, but they could do things independently as well. So all of that is to say that the Federal Defender Program in Chicago recognized very early on um, the, the value of mitigation because they had somebody specifically doing that. And today we have two mitigation specialists in the office, which again speaks to the recognition of the value that they bring, because in addition to those two, then we have a staff, um, I would say, of social work students at all time that are also doing mitigation investigations and trained to do that. However, that's not the case in every federal defender office um, and that's not necessarily the case in every state office either. So in state public defender offices. There would have to be a carved out um, role and funding made available for mitigation specialists, but in Cook County, for example, there is a staff of mitigation specialists as well as a supervisor who's in charge of those specialists. But the number of cases or the number of attorneys that they're hoping to help is impossible to actually provide sufficient support. So let's say that there's 500 Cook County public defenders. And if there's a staff of five mitigation specialists, that's just impossible. I don't even think that the five could sufficiently service just the homicide task force group alone. Um, You would need to have more than that just for that one division, that one group, but instead they're responsible for not only trying to support homicide task force, but also all the other branches plus juvenile court, plus um, every case that's basically coming into Cook County. So it's, it's an impossible task as is two mitigation specialists probably servicing the 17 staff lawyers at the Federal Defender Program. However, I think what ends up happening is that attorneys have to pick and choose which cases do they want to give to the mitigation specialists that are in an office that they have Um, because the ability to do that, even though every client should get one and every client deserves to have their life story told or investigated. It's just an impossibility without the right funding and without um just more people who are trained in order to do
0: that. Well, I'll just put a call out there to anyone listening. I did see that Cook County is hiring another mitigation specialist. So if anyone happens to know anyone who's interested in helping this great work, Cook County is hiring. Um, and to kind of close this out, I'd love to hear what inspired your pivot from working as an attorney full-time to deciding to pursue social work full-time. I know you're studying now for your social work licensure exam, uh, which is something that you may have thought was behind you studying for a large licensure exam after the bar. But So I applaud you for that. Um, but what inspired you to pivot at at this point? So as I was...
1: Saying earlier, I think that as a federal criminal defense lawyer, really the primary focus of where I felt like I could make a difference in clients' cases was post-plea and pre-sentencing when that was where all of my social work skills could come into play, where my ability to really dive into my client's story and try to make an effective persuasive presentation to the judges was kind of the culmination of, of everything I was trying to do. So even though I wasn't a mitigation specialist at that point, and I was still an attorney doing defense advocacy, um, when I stopped practicing law, because I ended up getting married and having my first child, um, I continued to work with the social work students who were learning how to do mitigation investigations, and it was something I was really happy to do, and I was happy to keep doing for as long as the Federal Defender Program valued my assistance, and I didn't think that I even had a thought that I would become a private practitioner as a mitigation specialist until the opportunity literally came to me, and it was... um, in the form of a person that I knew who was the chief of the Child Protection Division for the Public Defender's Office, Jessica Breyer, who has since passed. Um, But she knew what I was doing in the Federal Defender Program. She knew that I had a JD and MSW. And at one point we were talking because we had a friend in common and she was asking whether or not I would ever consider doing private work because she thought that the need to have somebody do cases or or work on cases in the child protection division even was something that would have been useful. And so that just sent me on a, um, I guess an informational, uh, period of inquiry where I had to think about whether or not that was something I wanted to do after training students for so long, but not doing it myself for a while. It was challenging. It was definitely um, mind-blowing to think about also after being in public defense for so long to do something as a private uh, practitioner in any way felt a little foreign to me, but it turned out to be in my opinion, the best opportunity um, that I could have. And I realized that through life, that's a lot of times how things happen. It's an opportunity that sometimes you're not even seeking will come to you. And so you have to make a decision about whether in that moment, it's the right fit. For me, it ended up to be that I decided I would go ahead and start taking cases. So I did work on one case in the Child Protection Division, but then um, I slowly had my name put out there to other people, um, both because of somebody that I knew who was a mitigation specialist in the Cook County Public Defender's Office, who then learned I was taking private cases. Um, She shared my name with a couple people, and it kind of took off from there. So I remember talking to some people about, um, I guess my insecurities at knowing whether or not this would even be a viable career. And somebody said to me, well, you won't know until you try and you won't know whether you're good unless you get another case because you might get hired for something and then never get a case again. And that was uh, a little, I guess, almost harsh in the presentation, but it, it really made a lot of sense. and. Uh, It's now been about five years. And I will say that um, my ability to kind of see that, that just like in the legal field, just like in the social work field, I guess any profession, a lot of it has to do with um, your reputation and how you conduct yourself, you know, that can kind of take you a long way. And so I'm really happy to say that I've been doing a lot of work with the public defender's office, but also I've been retained on some private cases as well, and I've been um, to different parts of the country working on cases in various forms, but mostly doing mitigation on criminal cases that are non-capital.
0: Well, thank you so much again for joining me today, Helen. And if anyone is interested, Helen does still teach at the Loyola Law School in the Advocacy Department, Um, and she's amazing. So highly encourage you to connect with her. Uh, Again, thanks for your time, Helen. Thank you for having me. That's all from all of us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our associate editors are Nekka Ugu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to Professor John Dane and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocat.